perhaps analyze the letter as follows. Number one, the new life which God has given us in Christ is how he starts off. Number two, the new society which God has created through Christ. Number three, the new standards which God expects of his new society, especially unity and purity. I've got unity highlighted because that's where we're at in the letter of Ephesians. We've gone through the first two points. We're now on this point of unity. Eventually in this section of scripture, chapters 4 and 5, we will get to the purity part. What does uh, a pure Christian life look like? And then lastly, the new relationships into which God has brought us. Harmony in the home and hostility to the devil. And then he summarizes this way. The whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty. Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must be and do in consequence. We spent a lot of time in those first three verses on that statement. What God has done in Christ and what we are called to do and be as a consequence of what God has already done. So this morning, verses, the first three verses where we've been, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we, I, I anticipate, there's no way I'm going to answer all the possibilities and questions and scenarios as to how unity ought to be preserved, how, when, and where. I will suggest that it is a guarded unity. I might even use the adjective, is it, it is an exclusive unity. Uh, it kind of reminded me this morning as I thought about this, in the book of Nehemiah, when when Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. And there were those outsiders who wanted to forge uh, a, uh, a relationship with Nehemiah and with the Jews who had returned. And Nehemiah resisted them. Nehemiah was not interested in unity where it would compromise what God had charged him to do, what God had charged Israel with. So there is a, a real unity that requires an urging on our part to participate in, but it's a guarded unity. I'm going to use Charles Spurgeon, my favorite Baptist, to give us some idea where the unity ought not to exist. So Charles Spurgeon, at the end of the uh, 19th century is when he lived uh, in London, uh, pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle. On this particular passage, he writes, or preached, The text bids us endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, but it does not tell us to endeavor to maintain the unity of evil, the unity of superstition, or the unity of spiritual tyranny, the unity of error, of false doctrine, of priestcraft, may have have in it the spirit of Satan, we do not doubt that, but that it is the unity of the Spirit of God, we do utterly deny The unity of evil we are to break down by every weapon which our hand can grasp. The unity of the spirit, which we are to maintain and foster, is quite another thing. 
And then in this entire sermon, he made this additional point, which uh, I thought on and it seemed very valid, and I found it intriguing, so I'm going to throw it up there as well. He went on to say, It is not a desirable thing that all churches should melt into one another and become one. For the complete fusion of all churches into one ecclesiastical corporation would inevitably produce another form of popery, since history teaches us that large ecclesiastical bodies grow more or less corrupt as a matter of course. Huge spiritual corporations are, as a whole, the strongholds of tyranny and the refuges of abuse. It is only a matter of time when they shall break to pieces. I think there's at least wisdom in that. The Bible doesn't say how large or small any one local expression of a church should be. I know for a large church, the largest, most fascinating, blessed church I've ever been in would, have been, would be Capitol Hill Baptist in, in Washington, D.C. If you ever go to Washington, D.C. to do some sightseeing, just a few blocks from the Capitol is Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Mark Dever is, is the, the main teaching pastor. It's a, a very unique church. It's a large church that is so wholly committed to Scripture and the Gospel and truth uh, it's quite unlike any large church I've ever been in. They sing the same types of songs we do. It's not this flamboyant, uh, it's not this entertainment sort of a scene. The same types of songs, a piano, a couple people on acoustic guitar. And they spend roughly an hour in song and scripture and prayer before they ever get to the sermon. So if you're like, but I really wanted to go to whatever else there was in D.C., like, you'll be just... It's, it's going to be about two hours, uh, maybe an hour and 45 minutes, but it's just, and it's mostly young people. The church has been around a long time, and so typically when a church has been around physically a long time, it's, a, it's older people, it's mostly young people, and they sing with such vim and vigor because they believe the gospel. It's, uh, it's really a neat church. So you can have a large church, and it's a good thing, but by and large, there are certain temptations that come with largeness. That is, when you have power, power corrupts, and the more power you have, the more it's corrupting. And so lots of times in large churches, it's run more like a corporation than it's run like a local body of Christ. Uh, so I'll, I'll throw that out there for what it's worth. Let's go back to Ephesians. Paul's appeal to maintain unity is immediately followed by a foundational confession of unity or the basis of unity. He said we need to be united. United how? What does it look like? What it looks like are verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. That's the basis or the foundation of the unity that Paul is calling for. Now, I'm going to start with a couple of general observations, and then we're going to go through each of those one things. The general observation would start off with, there are seven of those ones. An adjective followed immediately by what it is describing. So the, se the seven ones are one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You've got your seven ones. So 
I, I don't think that was a newsflash to you. I think you noticed those seven ones. But what you might not have noticed is, well, actually, I forgot this. That oneness theme, theme is found in chapter 2. So go back in your Bible if you have to turn a page. Go back to chapter 2 and look at how important oneness is. This is, this is the foundation upon which Paul uh, calls for unity. Back in, and I've read these verses many times. I realize you know them, but I want you to know Ephesians as well as you possibly can. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. Speaking of Christ... He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, that is, Jews and Gentiles, might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that oneness is a theme that was in chapter 2. Four times you've got that oneness named that he's now drawing upon when he calls the church to oneness in chapter 4. The second thing I want you to notice is that all three persons of the Trinity are recognized in the oneness that the church has. I can't eliminate one person of the Trinity and still have oneness. All three persons are there. You've got the Spirit, you've got the Lord, which is in reference to the Lord Jesus. We'll talk about that. And then you've got the God, our God and Father. Three persons of the Trinity is the basis of unity. I cannot experience or be committed to a oneness that denies any one of the three as holy God. We worship one God in three persons. First impressions. I'm not really opening it up for comments and questions here, but I just want you to think for a moment. What do you think about this basis of unity that Paul offers? How does it compare to, say, the Apostles' Creed that we started with? It's shorter than the Apostles' Creed, which we recited. It's kind of interesting, I would say, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, that Paul talks about one baptism, but he doesn't talk about one Lord's Supper at least not explicitly. I think it's kind of interesting that you've got this idea of oneness, which is foundational to unity, but he doesn't explicitly mention either the birth, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension. None of that is mentioned in this little statement, this foundation of oneness. That, that's interesting. It's not so significant that I'm saying that somehow you could deny those things, I think in some sense they're built into what Paul says, which we'll talk about. But it is interesting they're not named because so often, especially as you go through the book of Acts and as you look at what Paul writes, how central the resurrection is to Christianity. It's unlike any other religion on earth and that we believe in a resurrected Lord and Savior. One who has power over sin, death, and hell. That's unusual. That's unique. But Paul doesn't name some of those things in those few verses. So let's break it down one by one, and then I'll throw it open at the very end. 
He starts off with one body, which isn't surprising because his appeal in chapter 4 is that we would uh, maintain unity. We would maintain the body. We would maintain this concept of what does it mean to be one in Christ? So he starts off with this concept of a body, which is a very common metaphor in, uh, in Paul's writings particularly. I think the next screen shows instances where it is used. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 22, it reads like this. And he, speaking of God the Father, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then chapter 4 and verse 12 we aren't there yet, but we're headed that direction. In chapter 4 and verse 12, it reads, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then skipping down to verse uh, 16, and I'm reading these verses in the middle of a sentence, but verse 16 says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then I've also got chapter 5 and verse 23, which reads, For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So this concept, very popular in Paul, that and there's different images and metaphors for the church, but one of the leading ones is that the church is the body of Christ. And by church, I don't mean every building that has a Christian name on the outside. I don't necessarily mean every person that's sitting in here right now. Because you can be in a physical building and you can identify as a Christian. You can be baptized. You can take the Lord's Supper. But if Christ is not your Lord and Savior because you've confessed your sins and you've received Him by faith, then you've gone through all the, the extras of religion, but ultimately it boils down to a relationship with the living Lord, saved by faith and faith alone. That's the church. It's sometimes called the invisible church because I can't, you can't really tell whether somebody's just going through the motions of religion or whether Christianity is really at the very heart of who they are and that they're saved by grace. So it's the invisible church. I don't think we can separate this idea of one body from what Jesus said. This is in Matthew's gospel. Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. So I would kind of suggest to you that while in Ephesians, Paul doesn't name the Lord's Supper, the fact that he calls the church the body of Christ and the fact that when the church observes the Lord's Supper together, we are talking about the body of Christ. And we are one because we are saved by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one body. And so I think it's actually included in the first thing that Paul says, there is one body. Lest we fall into the error of making one body unity the sole or uh, the sole goal, that is universal faith and religion, the remaining ones, we've got six more to go through, the remaining ones set boundaries around what is meant by one body. We are to be one body. 
The other six ones tell you what that one body has to look like, what you have to commit to, what it's defined by, what the foundation is. It's not just oneness for the sake of unity. It's oneness where you rally around certain things that are non-negotiable, that can't be compromised, that are required for the oneness of a one body. So the first thing is one spirit. There's one body because there is one spirit. It's the one spirit that puts us into that one body. Probably the go-to verse, if I could put two on, I would. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 is also good, but verse 13 says, In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There is one body because there is only one spirit that places you into that body. That is a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not an experience like what happened at Pentecost for every believer who has ever existed. For the most part, you'll never know what just happened other than the fact that you confessed your sins and by, by this act of regeneration, by this act of salvation, you have been baptized into Christ's body. It's impossible to be a Christian apart from being baptized into Christ's body. It's not some secondary work of grace. Romans says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't even belong to him. If you're not in the body, you're not a Christian. They're one and the same. That's in Romans 8. I didn't throw that on the screen, but I could have. But you've got one spirit who baptizes us into one body. We're all saved the same way. God's Spirit convicts of sin so that a sinner repents of his sin and confesses Christ as his only hope in life and death. And because of that commonness of salvation, there's only one body. You'll remember a discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus, where in that discussion, Jesus told Nicodemus in the conversation, on two occasions, you must be born again. Or you must be, it can be translated, looked at different ways, you must be born from above. And then he explains himself. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. I know you've all been born physically. I'm sitting there looking at you. But being born of the flesh does not get you into the kingdom of God. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. That's the discussion Jesus had with Nicodemus. In Ephesians, we've seen the work of the Spirit in at least those four occasions uh, I'm not going to take the time to look at them because I'll run out of time. But you've got sealed by the Spirit. We have access to God by the Spirit. We are uh, together in one body by the Spirit. You've got all this concept of the Spirit is integral to the one body. We're here because of Him. We stay here because of Him. Thirdly, we've got uh, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Hope is defined as, at least on this occasion, I give some variations of it on different occasions, but hope in the Bible is a confident expectation of a promise fulfilled. Uh, expectation may be too weak. It's a confident assurance of a promise fulfilled. It's an absolute assurance of something future is going to happen because God gave the promise. This assurance comes from the call. Because God called us. It's kind of interesting how in Ephesians, Paul keeps going back to this idea of a call. Remember in chapter 4. 
Remember in verse 1 where he started off, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Anything that a Christian or the church is called to do, it's in light of what God has called us to, what God has done. It always starts with God. If what we do doesn't start with what God has done, then we're doing it in the flesh and it's to no good end. And it will not last. And it is not pleasing. All that we are meant to be is rooted in our calling by God's grace to salvation, to faith in Christ. So we're called to one hope. What is the hope that unites the church? It's described in chapter 1. I'll give you another place to turn your Bible to. Go to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Read this way. <clears throat> Speaking to, the, to believers, to the church making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you want the longer passage, you could do all of chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. It talks about the hope we have. I know how this thing is going to wind up because God has given us those promises. I don't have to guess whether at the end of the day it's going to result in a new heaven and a new earth. And it's not going to result in a reversal of everything that sin tainted back in Genesis chapter 3. It all winds up as it was originally meant to be because God has given the promise. And the church lives in that hope. We live in light of that because we know it's true. It's rooted in the character and the promise of God. Let's keep going. Let's do the next three. We've got one Lord, one Lord. This idea, uh, Paul in his letters, including Ephesians, repeatedly uses the title Lord in reference to Jesus. Go back again to Ephesians chapter 1. Look how he starts off the very letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes in beyond that. Over and over, when Paul refers to the Lord, he's referring to Christ our Lord. He's referring to the Son. God our Father, he's Lord, he's Lord as well. I'm not saying he's not Lord, but when Paul writes his letters, what he's contending for is what the Jews have always believed. There's only one God. There's only one Lord. And Christ is holy fully, truly God. He's Lord. And so in his letters, he constantly refers to Christ as Lord. Philippians chapter 2. That's the book after Ephesians. Go to Philippians chapter 2. And these are probably pretty well-known verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 is where I will start. Paul writes, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason... God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when every, every person on God's earth who has ever lived will confess Jesus is Lord. He's holy God. He's Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, truly God, fully God. Secondly, you've got this idea of one faith. Uh, the faith here is an objective faith. It's not a subjective faith. It's not asking, do you personally have your own belief in God? It's talking about what is true about this one Lord. So this is the word that I think that encapsulates or looks back to who he was from all eternity, what he became when he became a man, how he lived a perfect life of righteousness, how he uh, suffered and died, was buried, the third day rose again. That's the faith that we are confessing. All that is captured in this objective faith that is true. It's not talking about your... Mormons have faith. Hindus have faith in what they believe. Uh, Buddhists have faith. Everybody has faith, confidence in something Faith has no value if the object in which it is placed has no value. Faith is only as valuable as the object in which it is placed. This faith in Christ is what the church is united by. And that's what we confess when we, when we confess uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Jude puts it this way, the little book right before the book of Revelation. Jude chapter 3 says, Beloved... Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, you could put in the word one salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a common faith, a common salvation, once for all delivered. There are certain liberal theologians who would have you believe that there were competing gospels in the first century. And the gospel we believe and the Bible that we have and the gospels that we have were, were just the ones that kind of won the day. And I would suggest that is not true at all. There was one gospel. There was always one gospel. And the further we get away from the original source, the truth, you then come up with all these aberrations. It's kind of like, uh, if you want to liken it to, to marriage in our country, I, I've always, I found this as a personal uh, helpful to understand in our country, when, the, when our country was first founded and we became a nation, nobody had to write down what marriage was. Everybody knew. But when Bill Clinton was president, he passed the Defense of Marriage Act because the further you get away from your roots, the more people come up with ideas like, oh, no, that's not true. And you come up with these aberrations that are, that are deviations from the truth. The truth, they didn't have to define it, they knew what it was. But over time, if you're not committed to those roots, you come up with lots of competing ideas which are not true. Well, that's exactly what happened with the gospel. That's exactly what happened with who Jesus is. They knew exactly who Jesus was. But Jude is already having to pull them back because there are competing ideas in his day. I know who Jesus was. Fully man and fully God. He lived such and such a life. He died on a cross. He was raised again the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's poured out his spirit upon his church. 
That's not, a, that's not a, a separate gospel for Jews and Gentiles. Jews get to believe one gospel, and Gentiles believe another gospel. There's only one gospel. There's not a difference in, well, there was a gospel that worked really well for the first century church, but we're now 2,000 years down the road, and so we need a gospel tailored to our culture, because we're Western culture. We're much more independent-minded. There's only one gospel. There's only ever been one gospel that saves, that's true. And that's what Paul's pointing to when he talks about one Lord, one faith. Then he talks about one baptism, which is interesting because there's so, uh, baptism is such a divisive topic among different Christians. Uh, I've got on the back foyer counter, I don't know, I made maybe 15 copies, so if your family's interested, pick one up, and if I run out, I'll make more copies. But it's an equal opportunity offender. Uh, this will offend you if you're a Big B Baptist, and it will also offend you if you're a Presbyterian. Uh, so I think I, I'm comfortable saying that my own persuasion is, and this reflects my own persuasion, so that's why I like it, uh, but it reflects the, the persuasion that baptism is for believers, those who are believe and are baptized. I, I'm not going to say it hurts a baby to baptize a baby. I was baptized as a baby, but I wasn't believing the gospel. I don't know that scripture ever calls or explicitly gives any example where babies are, are baptized, though good Presbyterians do it for their own good reasons. They're good people. They can be good people. Um, I just differ on that score. But it also, I think it, this is going to reflect, I don't really care how much water you use when you're baptized. I don't think scripture makes a big deal about how much water gets used or doesn't get used. I think the important thing is if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. Because there's only one person that we confess as Lord. And there's only one gospel we believe. And when you believe in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you believe he died on the cross to take away your sins, why wouldn't you then express that by being water baptized? Because that's what it is. It's a confession to the church. I believe in that Lord. I believe in that's what he did. And his sins have washed me away. Washed my sins away. His death has washed my sins away. So one baptism. <clears throat> I don't think this can refer to the spirit baptism that's already been mentioned, though I've got some books that, that want to say, well, we're not talking about water here when we're talking about baptism. We're talking about the baptism of the spirit. But I think he's already dealt with that when he talked about the spirit. I think in this particular case, we're talking about water baptism. And again, I don't think the issue is how much, when and where so much. I think the issue is Christians get baptized. I've got water in the tank right now. I'm not going to ask you to get baptized right now, but I'll keep that water in there for next week if somebody wants to be baptized. And then lastly, we've got one God and Father of all. One God and Father of all. Who is the all in reference to? Who's included in that all? How big is the all? Some writers will say, well, I think that all includes the whole world. He's God and Father of all. Uh, that's not entirely without scriptural support. Uh, Larry, in Sunday school, is getting ready to start, or no, he's maybe already in Acts chapter 17, and Paul is getting ready to go to Athens in Greece. And when Paul goes to Athens in Greece, he's going to talk about, we, talking to the Athenians, he's going to talk about, uh, we are all God's offspring. 
And in a general sense, that's true. There's an element which, where it's true. Every person that's on earth is in some sense under the God is their creator, they are his offspring. Not in a salvific sense, not that they're saved, not that everybody goes into the kingdom of heaven just because they've been created by God. But there is some sense in which there's a relationship between every person on earth and God being creator. They are his offspring. But that doesn't fit the context here at all. So I don't think when he says there's one God and Father of all, he's talking about all people on earth. That would be, um, that would be ignoring the context, ignoring where we're finding this statement. The second alternative is that this God and Father of all refers to all people who have enter, ever entered into the kingdom of God by faith. Going back to before Abraham, going back to before Noah, going back from when the time Adam first sinned, trespassed against God, any who called upon the name of the Lord, believing that their only hope of, of righteousness was found in God and God alone, and they believed what, God, what little God had revealed to them at that point, and they're saved by faith, they're part of the kingdom of God. And so we're not talking about all the people of the world. We're talking about all the people who are in the kingdom of God by grace through faith. Now, the content of our faith is more explicitly known in the person in the work of Jesus, but they didn't explicitly know the person in the work of Jesus in the Old Testament. So the content of their faith was uh, less rooted in the person in the work, though they're only saved by Jesus, but they didn't understand how that would transpire. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did he believe? God told Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a child. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And those who bless you will bless you. And the, uh, those who bless you, you will, they will find a blessing. And those who curse you will be cursed. Abraham believed God. He didn't, it doesn't say that he, God ex, explained to Abraham the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But he believed what God told him. And he was justified by faith. But I think this is too big as well because it doesn't fit the context of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's writing to, the, to Gentile churches and he's talking about the peace that exists between Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. So I think in context what he's referring to, he's the father of all Jews and Gentiles who were brought into this new man created out of the two that we call the church. One new man. He's He's God and Father of all. He's no more the God of the Jew who believes in Christ than he is the God of the Gentile who believes in Christ. He's no more God of a, of a Christian in America who believes in Christ than the God of a Russian who believes in Christ or somebody in an Asian culture who believes in Christ. He's God and Father of one church, one church, built upon the seven ones we've looked at. He's described as uh, over God, God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Commentators, there's really no great agreement as to how much should be made out of each one of those prepositions other than the fact that at its very root, what Paul is arguing for is everything that the church is and will ever hope to be is rooted in who God is and what God has purposed to do. 
The church has no existence apart from God the Father. He superintends over the church. The church is here because it was God's plan to build the one church in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is over all. He's through all. Anything that the church accomplishes to the glory of Christ is because the Father is doing it through the church by his Spirit. He's in all. He's in each believer who's been gifted with grace to participate in the life of the church so that the church becomes a more beautiful thing. Because however much you understand God or Christ, you need help from your neighbor. No one Christian can grasp all the beauty of God for who he is. We need each of our perspectives where together we have a closer, a better vision of all the beauties of God's goodness and grace as he works in our lives differently. All to a good purpose for those who are called in Christ. So you've got the Spirit, you've got Christ the Lord, you've got God the Father. It's a very unusual order in all of the Bible. Because in the Bible, typically, it's reversed. You typically start with the Father, and then the Son, and then the Spirit. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, he the Father, chose us in our Lord before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, our Lord, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's common, a common order. You start with the Father's purposes, accomplished and revealed in the person of the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. But this is quite unusual in that Paul starts with the Spirit, moves to the Son, and ends with the Father. And what Paul is doing is he is arguing from the effect... Back to the cause. Normally, you start with, how did it all happen? And then you work out, well, here's the effects of that. Here's the result of the original cause. But he's arguing backwards. He's starting with, we're to be committed to this one body. That's the effect. That's, that should be the end result. Now you argue back. Well, it's because of who Christ is. And, and Christ did that, all of that because God our Father is over all. And it was his plan. It was his purpose. 
and it argues all the way back. That's, that's unusual, but it's, I think, noteworthy, and I find it a little bit fascinating. What are your comments and questions? It took us three weeks to do the first three verses. I'm done with the next three in one week. Jonathan. It's, it's, it's a particularly the Father's purposes that all this came to be. I think that sounds terrific. That sounds terrific. Somebody else? Uh, Carrie. Um, probably. I mean, I'd have to look at a Greek text to see if it's exactly the same word, but probably. The concept, the concept of hope in the Bible is never the Western concept of it may or may not happen. In the Bible, when it uses the word hope, it's a confident assurance that God is going to fulfill what he's promised. So we live and we conduct ourselves in a certain way because we know how it's going to wind up. Uh, and then the slide defines oneness. Um, I don't remember that slide. I'm not sure which one. Uh, uh, Joe and then Rick. Mm-hmm. I think he never gets very far away from the doctrine. Uh, Christian life and conduct divorced from doctrine is like, is like trying to steer a boat without a rudder or oars. It just, you've got to have the doctrine to provide guidance for what, it, what direction you want to be going. So he, and there will be doctrine in all of chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's just that there is now an, a new emphasis on what do we do with it. But that's exactly right. Rick? Yeah, just for the first century or whatever. From the first century down to today. So the church was born at Pentecost. Uh, that's when the Spirit uh, baptized people into the body of Christ for the first time. And it include that all is, is all believers who comprise the church beginning at Pentecost. That's how I would take it. Yeah. Somebody else? Rich? I concur, and I think, I think probably beginning next week is we will start delving into the direction you're, you're headed, where in verse 7 it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now he's going to say, you know, we've got, we've got to maintain this unity, and the unity is founded on those things, but now we've got different gifts of grace that need to be appreciated and cultivated and encouraged so that together we're maintaining the, the unity. Unity is not uniformity. And it, there's going to be uh, definitely not uniformity, but there is unity around these things. And even beyond that, Rich, I mean, I would agree that, I mean, he still hasn't given us the nuts and bolts, well, who do you associate with and who, you, what, who, who don't you? Like, which, which church, you know, I've got a friendly relationship with Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. That's not the only church I have a friendly relationship with. I'm good friends with Southern View. Uh, I think there's Christians in a lot of denominational churches. But while I am comfortable extending Christian unity to individuals, I have to be careful about the church itself. Because the church itself may stand for something. I'll give you an example I don't mean to be offensive. I don't mean to, but I may. I mean, I may offend, but I'm not trying to offend. Like, I would be, 
In most cases, I would be very reluctant to ever extend participation in unity with the Methodist Church because what they stand for as a whole is counter-gospel. It's, it's not purity that Paul writes about in Ephesians. But I think there are Christians in the Methodist Church, and I want to be careful not to ostracize them. I think there's Christians in a Roman Catholic Church. You can't be a good Catholic and be saved by grace through faith. They're, they're two different things. But I think there's Christians in a Catholic church, but I can't participate shoulder to shoulder with a Roman Catholic church because what they stand for officially compromises what Paul's talking about in those three verses. That's where I'm at. Somebody else? Eve. I'm glad you feel free to disagree with me. And if you weren't my chiropractor and I really need you to get me out of the trouble every time I get in. <laughs> Actually, the opinion I would take on the baptism is, I mean, I, I read a lot. Some say, it's got to be the Spirit. Some say, no, we're definitely talking water. I think, I don't, at least an equal opinion is say you can't divorce the two. The water baptism is a necessary part of what it means to confess one Lord and, and one set of faith doctrines, and baptism necessarily follows. So I'll, there would be a third opinion that's as much as the other two, maybe even the majority opinion. I didn't really write down who said what. But a lot would say you can't divorce the two. It's not either or, it's both and. Both and. So, uh, Terry. And then I probably better, well, we had a business meeting, so... There's a, there is a, definitely in Scripture, there is a priority and urgency to be, and, and desire to be water baptized because Christ is my Lord, uh, beginning of Pentecost, uh, and all through the book of Acts. Where it became muddy, which is kind of funny since we're talking about water baptism, where it became muddy is really with Constantine when he declared uh, Christianity the official religion of Rome. First it was tolerated, uh, acceptable, and then it became official. And people were getting baptized right and left. And so uh, it became, it didn't mean much. And so the church then had to kind of safeguard baptism, like, is Christ your Lord? And they would oftentimes then wait to see if you were bearing uh, fruits that evidenced repentance. Were you, was your life really changed or were you doing it because it was a popular thing to do? I mean, we all would agree that in, in America, not so much now as it used to be when I was young, but in America, most people consider themselves Christians. I mean, the, they identify with a religion as Christianity, and so they got baptized somewhere along the way, whether it was a, as an infant or whether as a child, without understanding that they were confessing a Lord, and they were confessing a set of doctrines by faith. And so I think Constantine made baptism, the significance of baptism, a little confusing. That's my take on it. Let's, uh, let's stand and be dismissed in prayer, and then we'll pause 15 minutes at the most, and those that can stay for a business meeting will do that.